When I went to New York City and Oklahoma. Since I can't give you detention hall if you don't. Yeah, I think that's nearly everybody. Before I give you a chance to welcome Stephanie to our second All-Texas Al-Anon Conference, I would like to share with you how I first became acquainted with her. It was in April of 1975, and I was in New York serving my last term as delegate to World Service, and she was starting her first term on the Board of Trustees. There was a banquet on opening night, and I had been asked to talk. I'm very rarely nervous when I talk, but I was that night. She wrote me a little note afterwards, a little note of affirmation and encouragement. Now, those of us who are articulate come across as terribly self-assured, and so we don't get a lot of reassurance. No one thinks we need it. And uh, I'm here to tell you that speaking in complete sentences doesn't mean you don't need reassurance. I found that a very heartwarming gesture. I was glad that I had known her as a warm and caring human being because then I wasn't too terribly awed when she was chairman of the Board of Trustees from 1976 to 1980. On the other hand, I respect achievement in any area. Our paths have continued to cross here and there around the country and I have a few other notes from her filed away with that first one. But I want to present her to you tonight as a fellow Al-Anon whose program I admire and whose friendship I cherish, Stephanie O. from New Rochelle, New York. My name is Stephanie O'Keefe, and I'm a very grateful member of the Larchmont, New York, Al-Anon group. Hi, all. Hi, You all tells you I'm from southern New York. <laughs> I was one of the people, I guess, that Blanche was afraid was going to mug her. <laughs> and I can't camouflage the fact that I'm a damn Yankee. Um... I use my last name for a lot of reasons, one of which is that my husband does a great deal of speaking and has spoken in Texas a great many times. And he always refers to me as the current Mrs. O'Keefe. Uh, he says he does this to keep me on my toes. So I knew that there was no point. And I knew that you probably spent sleepless nights wondering what the current Mrs. O'Keefe looked like. <laughs> I have been current for 26 years. And in order to make him a little bit nervous, I always refer to him as my first husband. <laughs> my mother always taught me to say thank you. And... Um, I am so grateful, this is not the first time I've been to Texas, that you have invited me back and allowed me to cross the state line again. Um, I'm always so very, very glad to be any part of any convention. It seems like 
such a tremendous time of uh, sharing. And uh, I'm one of those people, like Blanche, who doesn't look nervous. And uh, I'm not. I'm terrified. <laughs> and she's right, you don't get a lot of sympathy. But I've always been very, very grateful to be part of any convention. And it's always meant a great deal to me. I've always gone home with so much. And I, I'm particularly glad uh, to be here tonight. I was uh, in the state one of those times a number of years ago when you were talking about starting this convention. And uh, I was so glad to hear that you had had the first convention and so very, very glad to be part of the second one. But I'm glad also for another reason, and it really didn't come into my mind until about two weeks ago. I've been going through a rather difficult time in my life, and um, thank God for this program. I have been using it. I have been saying the serenity prayer. I have been trying to look at the things I couldn't change. And yet part of me kept trying to fight that acceptance. And I, I even knew I was doing that. And I knew that some of these things, um, I was not going to be able to change them. I also knew how much I had to be grateful for in my life. But I think all of us have gone through periods that, well, let's say, are dry spiritually. And I was certainly going through a period like that. And I, I knew that I was fighting. And I knew that I was trying to accept. And somehow or other, it really doesn't, just wasn't quite working. And... In one of my conversations with God, I said, you know, I need something. I really need something. Please give it to me. And about two weeks ago, I really remembered that I'd been invited here for this weekend and that God was giving me just exactly what I needed. That in this next two days, I am going to be the beneficiary of all of your love and all of your sharing and all of your caring and that truly I will be able to accept what I cannot change and that I will be able to go back refreshed and renewed and able to start again and so I'm very very grateful to be here tonight they tell us that we should tell it like it was and how we got here and what it's like now It doesn't take me a great deal of time to get out of the service because I never was in it. But I have to explain a little bit about what I was like before I knew anything about alcoholism. I married the name O'Keefe. Uh, that's an Irish name. Um, and the Irish are known for being alcoholics, at least in my part of the country. Um, but that was my married name. My maiden name is Fitzpatrick. But as far as I know, there is no alcoholism in my family. Uh, and I grew up with a rather smug attitude. Uh, there was very little drinking even in our family. And I had that really very superior attitude. I really wasn't comfortable around drunks. And I didn't like them. And look where I am today, <laughs> loving every one of them. Um, I was raised in 
rich, affluent, sophisticated Westchester County in New York. And I tried for sophisticated and gave it up around the freshman year of high school. I just couldn't make it. <laughs> and the other sad part really was that um, we weren't rich. In fact, we weren't very well off at all. But I was given a great deal uh, in my childhood and my youth, things that I really didn't appreciate until after Al-Anon. I came from a family where there was a great deal of love, a great deal of support, a great deal of caring for us. Uh, we loved hard and we fought hard. Um, I knew a loving God. I went through a period when I was a teenager, which I think is a normal part of growing up, that I decided that there wasn't any God and that furthermore the church that I had been raised in in that point up until that point was wrong. And I worked through that. I always sort of pictured God jumping up and down with joy when I decided that I believed. Um, it didn't change God's nature one whit, but I was sure he was delighted. And I even found myself very comfortable in my own faith. Um, I know now that I knew a loving God. I knew a, a God of laughter. I didn't uh, know a God of fear. I didn't know a, a God of hell and damnation. And I'm very grateful to my parents for that. I also know that one of the reasons that I felt comfortable with God is that he really gave me so much. Um, that I never really understood about God because I really had never had any difficulties with him once I had gotten over the fact that I did believe in him. I did very well in school and I was a jock right about the same time Tom was. <laughs> Long before it was fashionable for girls to be doing that. I was into every organization and all of these things came really very easily to me. And on the outside I would have told you, and I certainly convinced my family and anyone I knew, that I really had it all together. And everything on the surface certainly indicated that. I had awards and scholarships and all of this kind of thing. I even went to graduate school, and I hope you're terribly impressed with that. Uh, it really made me a little overeducated for that job I did for so long of dishes, dust, and diapers. But... I'm awfully glad I did it. I don't think I ever would have learned those things if somebody hadn't been hanging over my head saying, you have a term paper due, you have to do a book report, you have an exam. And I am very grateful for all of that learning. But while I was having all of these good things inside, I didn't know who I was, and I didn't feel good about myself. I was filled with a great deal of envy and self-pity, because obviously you all had more money than I did. You all had more material things. You were all better looking. Um, I was filled with a great deal of fear. And most of that fear had to do with failure. Because I wanted so desperately for you to like me, to love me. I needed everybody to like me. That, and I thought one of the things that would make you like me was for me to succeed. And so I was terribly afraid of failing. And I did something uh, that I was to do many times in my life. If I didn't think I was going to succeed, I pretended I didn't, wasn't interested. I didn't care. And if I got myself into a situation where I wasn't succeeding, I got out of that as gracefully or as ungracefully as was possible. 
but I didn't want to fail, and so I got away from that. I am extremely shy, which nobody would believe, because instead of sitting in a corner with my thumb in my mouth and my blanket up to my ears, I talked you to death to cover up the fact that I felt very, very uncomfortable and very, very unsure of myself. Those are all things that I had inside me while giving you the impression that I had it all together and that I was really a very, very capable person. None of that had anything to do with alcoholism. But that's part of the baggage that I brought to my wedding day on my honeymoon and to my marriage. While I was going to school and working, I was also desperately looking for a husband. I come from that generation where it was all right to say you were looking for a husband. Nowadays, that's not in style. But you see, I was raised at a time and in a religion where there were really two career goals for a woman. In order to be a success, you either got married or you became a nun. <laughs> and I didn't look good without makeup, so I discarded that other career. And I was looking for a husband, and I was old enough that I realized he should be something more than looking like a movie star. And I had a little list, as Gilbert and Sullivan would say, <laughs> of things that were important, and I still think they are. Uh, I thought he should be intelligent. I don't mean a long string of degrees, but that he would enjoy using his mind, that he would be strong, because I knew that I gave the impression of great strength, but I didn't really feel that I had any, and I didn't want to wear the pants in the family. And I thought that he should have a good sense of humor because I knew that there would be problems in marriage and in a family. We had had them and that laughter helped you get over them. And I found him. And since he's not here tonight to contradict me, I trapped him. And um, those of you who know him uh, know that he is extremely intelligent and a very strong man and one of the funniest people that God has ever put on this earth. And we got married, and we did not live happily ever after. <laughs> because for the first few years of our marriage, I thought he was the stupidest, weakest, least funny person that I had ever known because of the way he drank. <laughs> you know, last year, uh, when I called Gracie and asked her what I should wear to Texas, in February, she said last year we had a snowstorm. <laughs> Would any of you like to join me in that little Al-Anon song? We're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. I got off on that because I, I was thinking that marrying an alcoholic was really a bonanza. It didn't rain pennies from heaven from me. It rained dollar bills and hundred dollar bills because now I had an excuse for all the things that I hadn't really liked too well in myself as a child and as a young adult because I was married to an alcoholic. I also forgot to mention that with my Irish background and red hair, I had a very bad temper as a child. And um, I had learned to control that temper because I found out that roommates didn't put up with what sisters did. 
And I didn't do it because I wanted to change myself particularly. It was a very, you know, practical way of doing it. But here I was married to an alcoholic, so I could take it off. Of course I feel insecure. Of course I'm filled with fear. Of course I feel sorry for myself. Of course I'm ashamed and embarrassed. Of course I'm insecure. And of course I have a rotten temper. I'm married to an alcoholic who wouldn't have all of those things. It was so convenient. I never had to look at me. I could look at somebody else and blame everything that I did, every failure, every in thing that I failed at, and everything that I wanted to be and was not being, I could blame on the fact that I was married to an alcoholic. And things were not good in our house. I once again tried to give my family, his family, the neighborhood, the impression that we were the happy, suburban uh, professional family, uh, good churchgoers, good in interested in the community. I built up a facade and a wall that wouldn't allow anybody in. In the religion in which I was raised, which has been known to give gold stars not for coffee, but for procreation, <laughs> my husband uh, says my best friend was my obstetrician, um, and I notice that some of you are a little younger than I am, and I don't want to tell you about the birds and the bees, but in the usual way, and as fast as humanly possible, we had one, two, three, four, five, six, the pause that refreshes, drink Coca-Cola, seven children. This is called the O'Keefe Modified Birth Control Plan. If these children would ever leave home and get married, we could go out to dinner every night of the week without ever being a burden on any one of them. <laughs> Two of the children have been born since I was in Al-Anon, and one has been born since my husband was in AA. Uh, but you can imagine that I added, I came into Al-Anon with five children, and that added to my feeling of self-pity. I mean, all of these children... And I don't have, and I know in Texas, there's, you know, you do things so big down here. I'm sure there's somebody that has a bigger family. But I felt so sorry for myself. One of the initial mistakes I made, I joined a group that was very, very new at that point, and we were all pretty new in it. There were two older members of Al-Anon, and I, they kept stressing that we needed a sponsor, and I didn't want to go to them. I guess I was afraid they'd know too much, so I picked someone else new in the group to be my sponsor. Um, and that was a terrible error because I went over to talk to her one day and to tell her about how noble I was with the five children. She said she could identify with that. And I said, oh, how many do you have? And she said, nine. <laughs> I realized that, you know, that rug was quickly pulled out from underneath me. I could hardly expect a great deal of tears on her part. We ended up really sponsoring each other, I guess, for 19 years until a year ago and um, when Kitty died and she hadn't been able to go to a meeting in the last two years of her life she had a very horrible disease and yet I watched her live this program with such courage and such strength and such constant giving um, that she practiced Al-Anon even though she couldn't get to a meeting for all that time and she was a constant. I used to go over and try to do something for her, and I never left her room that I didn't feel lifted up and strengthened by being with her. 
I spent a great deal of time crying. I had a little girl who used to pat me on the back and say, no cry, mommy. I spent a lot of time using language that you would have thought I had learned in the service. They're all very short words and they're easy to spell. <laughs> and I was sure that I as a lady would never have used them, but I rationalized after all I was married to an alcoholic. I screamed a lot and I went around in something that we women do when we aren't screaming so very, very well, in golden silence. <laughs> Tell your father to pass the butter. <laughs> and I wouldn't speak for days. And when I did, I remembered everything in chronological and alphabetical order that I had been storing up. I had always been taught to be honest, and I was a liar and a cheat. I stole. I became an excellent check forger, something that I was really secretly quite proud of. Um, I couldn't go around bragging about it, but I didn't have a checking account for the very good reason. I didn't have any money. And, um, but I would forge my husband's name to checks. And really the only time the bank called and complained about the signature was when he had signed them. <laughs> I had the distinct advantage of doing it sober, I guess. And I thought all those things were necessary. I, I didn't think I had any choices. I thought I had to do these things because I lived in this situation. And I must admit also that I didn't say the word alcoholic for many, many, many years. Well, not many, many years, but for a long time. Because no matter what I had ever read or heard about it, it was still shameful. It was still something about the Bowery and a bum lying in a doorway. And my husband was a professor of law. And I couldn't equate the two things. And I'd get up and I'd pace the floor back and forth. I frankly would have made a better expectant father than I did a mother. Back and forth, wringing my hands. I can remember doing it one time, night after night, and saying to myself, my God, how are we going to get these five children through college? And not one of them was old enough to go to kindergarten yet. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but if you stay up all night, uh, you're not apt to wake up in the best mood the next morning. And I got very little sleep during that period. I didn't eat very well. I didn't think I could because I had to stew and worry and cry and scream and yell and look out the window how important it was to find out what direction he was coming from. <laughs> that way or this way. I couldn't leave that spot. And I lived with fear and I lived with guilt, maybe if I were different. Maybe if we hadn't had so many children. Maybe if I were a better person, a better wife. He wouldn't drink this way. And I'd go to bed at night and I'd make up my mind that tomorrow I'm going to be something ready for the cover of Good Housekeeping magazine without any effort on my part, of course. And I would be perfect and it would be perfect and that would go away and we would live happily ever after. I look back on that time now and I, I see it, first of all, as a time when there was no humor in my life. There was nothing that was happy going on. I look back on it as a time that I wasted. And thank God for this program. 
because if I today lived with the guilt of the time I wasted then, I would waste today. And I often wondered why I hadn't come in to Al-Anon earlier, and if only I had found this earlier. I came in when I did. And what really happened was one morning I woke up, and typical of much I had done in my life, where I hadn't succeeded, where I hadn't been the star, where I hadn't been number one, I decided I was going to get out of this. And I went to my clergyman, and I didn't know how to start. And he said to me finally, Stephanie, you're trying to tell me your husband's an alcoholic. And I burst into tears, and I cried, and I cried. And I said, how did you know? And he said, I've been in your home, and my father's an alcoholic. And I said, I can't take it any longer. I want a separation. I think if he had said to me, Stephanie, you said for better or for worse, until death do you part, and this is your cross and you must carry it, I would have dug in my thick Irish heels and insisted on getting that separation. But all he said to me was, Stephanie, uh, hang on a second, let me get that form, and you tell me what your maiden name was and we'll start this process. And I said, hang on a second, Father. Maybe there's something else I can do. And he suggested that I go to open AA meetings and Al-Anon. And I did not accept that suggestion with great grace. In fact, I did not do what he suggested, to be very honest. First of all, because I live in a very small little town, or I did then, and I felt that I was the only one in this community with this problem, and that I would probably have to go down to the Bowery in New York City and what would I have in common with all of you? I also was embarrassed, and I was terribly resentful. Because, you see, I could see he had a problem, but I thought he was the luckiest man on earth to be married to me, the saint, the martyr, both mother and father to these young babies. And really, why was I going to have to do something? I sort of wanted him to do something with my husband. And I resisted going. And at first, when I did start to go, I had a little difficulty with the word Al-Anon, but at least I was familiar with the word Alcoholics Anonymous. So I started to go to open meetings, but not in Larchmont. I went to Connecticut where I found other people from Larchmont hiding. <laughs> and this was getting to be kind of long and expensive each, each time I would go, so I finally got steeled myself and went to my first open AA meeting in Larchmont, where I didn't know a soul. All of our friends were out drinking or worrying about their drinking. And I was greeted so warmly. And I said to this man who hugged me and said, Welcome, we're so glad to see you. Is this your first meeting? And I said, Yes, but I'm not an alcoholic. And he looked like, Oh, God, what am I going to do with this one? <laughs> and an inspiration struck him, and he said, There are two women standing over there, and they're talking about starting an Al-Anon group next week in Larchmont. I'm going to take you over and introduce you to them. If they'd been more than myself that these two women were talking to. I don't know whether I would have showed up the next week. 
But I was afraid not to go because they took my first name and telephone number, and I thought if I didn't come, they might call. And so I went. And I can't really say that I appreciated anything you gave me in those first few months. I don't think I heard very much. And I certainly was not grateful. First of all, I thought you were nuts uh, or completely unfeeling because you were happy and you were smiling and you were laughing. And I thought, oh, God, they don't know what it's like. <laughs> I thought you were, you know, really off your gourds. And then I thought you were very petty and very mean and very selfish because you weren't telling me the magic formula of how I was going to go home and sober this man up. You kept asking me how I was, how my day had been, how my week had been. Well, it was terrible, thank you, but I wasn't about to tell you that. And I don't know why I kept coming back. I felt very superior with my master's degree. And look at this stuff sitting around on the table. Easy does it. <laughs> let go and let God. I could take apart all those. I was an English teacher. I could take apart all those sentences and spell every one of those words. And I felt vastly superior. But there was something there that you had that I did not have. You had laughter in your life, and you had a measure of serenity in your life. You might not have had as much education. And some of you even had more children or more financial problems. But you had something that I didn't have, and I kept coming back. And the amazing thing to me is that I need you just as much today as I did in those first meetings 19 years ago. And each one of you have just as much to give me in a very different way. I'm not a newcomer anymore. But I don't want to be put on a pedestal. And I don't want to have it thought that if you've been in Al-Anon five years or ten years, that you don't have problems and that you don't fail. And I want to be able to tell you about it. And I want to be able to let you help me because it was through your honesty and your sharing that I slowly began to hear what this was all about. And at first I clung on to those slogans, and I still do. And I clung on to the serenity prayer. And I'm telling you, I stood in my kitchen many a time saying through gritted teeth, God grant me the serenity to say this damn prayer with some serenity. <laughs> and I kept hoping I'd get it. <laughs> and I want to tell you, for all my vaunted education and brains, I fought everything all the way down the line. They kept getting in my way. I kept wanting some deep philosophical, theological argument which I could possibly win. And you gave me the slogans and the serenity prayer. And I learned to say it with a measure of serenity. And I learned to accept eventually the things I couldn't change. And I even learned just a few years ago that I didn't have to like everything that I couldn't change. I didn't have to fall in love with it. But if it wasn't changeable, if I was going to learn to live and be happy as I could, I better learn to accept it. And I learned that the thing I could change the most was me. 
and that it wasn't going to be uh, overnight and it wasn't going to be without any effort on my part but that I would have all the help that I needed every day for the rest of my life as long as I asked for it if I'd just keep coming I was one of the ones and I think it's sad that said um, I don't think I'm ready for the steps they seem you know I'm not really ready and finally I went over to my sponsor one day and I said you know Kitty when do you think I'll be ready for the steps and she said with that look that sponsors are born with I think and she looked at me and she said Stephanie when do you think you'd like to start getting better and I got the distinct impression that she thought it might be a good idea if I started today on the steps and it is said because that is what Al-Anon is it is the 12 steps of AA with one word changed that is our program that is our strength and hearing about those steps from other people is what allows us to grow I had some difficulty with the first step <laughs> but at least I had been in Al-Anon for enough time that I had learned at least for things that I had faced up till that time that I was powerless over alcohol I could give up the things that I had tried so often or at least make an attempt at giving them up I do remember that um, our sixth child was born during that period and my husband was then um, what's the polite expression around AA at that point not sober but in and out and I planned my entire labor in order to keep him sober because I had never gone through labor before when he was not drinking and when I was in the recovery room I somebody says not hard to smell alcohol over the phone I recognized the footsteps coming down the hall and I started to cry and then I laughed and he said what's so funny and I said I'm laughing at myself because I planned this whole labor in order to keep you sober and we could have saved $25 on an anesthesiologist all I would have had to do was inhale here and they could have put me out but it taught me that this step will work with things I haven't faced if I apply the step and I hadn't that time but there have been many times since that time that I have known that I was powerless over alcohol and that I was powerless over other people and when I use that step I don't have to plan my labor again in order to change somebody else I can do something more profitable with my time I don't have to waste that time it wasn't as easy to take the second half of the step because I hadn't really looked at Stephanie O'Keefe in a very long time and I couldn't really see that my life was unmanageable I could see that Ray's was but I couldn't face the liar the cheat the check forger the screamer the nagger the person filled with fear and guilt and yet you helped me do that so that it was possible for me to go on to the second step and become willing 
or to admit that God could do something that I wasn't capable of doing. And at that point in my life, I still believed in God. I hadn't lost my belief in God, but I hated Him. I hated Him for what He had done to me. And it was very hard for me to take the second and third step, to admit that God could do something and to turn my life and my will over to Him. And I've had to go back because I now know a loving God. And I know that God had not done anything to me in that period. And that God will give me all the help I need today. And I find it easier today to look and to turn my life over to the God that I know and understand. When it came to the fourth step, I think many of us in Al-Anon felt like, well, I really am home because I was more than prepared to take a fearless moral inventory of someone else and a vaguely disappointed that it was to be of myself. And I was as honest as I could be in that first fourth step inventory. And I don't take hundreds of fourth steps. But there have been a couple of times in my life that I have had to go back. And hopefully, if I remember, I'll explain them. Because the tenth step takes care of most fourth step problems. But I was as honest as I could be with that first fourth step, and I wrote it. And I hid it under our mattress because as far as I knew, Ray had never gone under a mattress, and I didn't want to have him have an edge on me with me being trying to be honest. And probably 20 years, almost 20 years later, we would have had nothing more than a lumpy mattress if it hadn't been for the fifth step that I was to tell God and myself and one other person the exact nature of my wrongs. I don't think that's easy, and I was very lucky. But that was the beginning of action for me because as long as it was between God and me, it was a kind of secret and I didn't have to start working on me. I could just keep it between God and myself. But once I had talked to my sponsor and taken my fifth step with her, then I felt that she would be watching and I had better start. In the sixth step, it says that we became ready. And since I am interested in sports, I always tried to compare it to playing in a game. I was going to get ready to play in this game. I was going to get all the equipment I needed, all the other teammates that I needed, the uniform, the ball, the bat, whatever was I was going to need for this game. I was going to get ready in that sixth step. And in the seventh step, I admitted that I couldn't do it alone, that I needed help. And at first, I asked God for that help, but I didn't do it humbly. I was too proud. And it wasn't until I went back and mentally underlined that word humbly that I really could begin to take that step because it was in this final kind of defeat and admission of defeat and in this final surrender of humbly asking that my only chance for victory lay this final surrender of my will and my way and the reason I had to go back was because in that period that I did not humbly ask 
I kept coming to meetings and I talked a good game. But I turned away from the power that is in these rooms. And during that period, I, I hurt a lot of people. Most of all, I hurt myself. And it was necessary for me to go back. And to this very day, I have failed these steps any number of times. But they have never failed me. And neither have you. You welcomed me back. You understood. And you forgave. And you gave me the privilege of starting again. A privilege you give me every day of my life. When I came to the eighth step, I made a list of those that I had harmed. And it may sound egotistical, but my name was on that list. Because I had harmed myself physically. I weighed 80-some pounds when I came into Al-Anon. I had harmed myself emotionally. And I had harmed myself spiritually. I certainly had hurt my family and many other people and I know today that it was important for me to be on that list because I have an obligation to myself to keep my own house in order to be careful of my own health to be careful of my own emotional stability and to work hard on my spiritual life because I can't give you what I don't have myself I can't help anybody no matter how much I'd like to in the ninth step, we are asked to make amends, except where to do so. It might cause more harm. I faced a month ago that in a couple of instances, I have rationalized that step. I said, oh no, I, I won't make direct amends to that person. It would cause harm. And yet I had such a beautiful gift given to me that made me see what I had done. At dinner one night, one of our children said to me, Mom, can I talk to you for a few minutes after dinner alone, which in our house is a little difficult to do. And I said, yeah, we can, we can make time for that. And we went upstairs and I said, uh, you know, is there anything wrong? And he said, no, I just want to take a ninth step with you. I want to make amends to you. And that night I knew that there have been times before that that I should have done it, and I didn't. And I was so grateful for the courage it took that young man to give it to me. It also has meant for me that inherent in that step, although it is not written there, that I will forgive anyone or try to even if they have not made amends to me. Because there have been a times in my life where I have tried to make amends, and those amends have not been accepted. I have not been forgiven. It has not been forgotten. And it is hard. And yet you showed me that that became that person's problem, not mine, that I had tried and that God forgave me and that it was essential that I forgive myself.
no matter what anyone else did. And so I try to look at it today where I think I am owed amends, that they have been offered in whatever way that person is capable of doing it. In the 10th step, we are asked to take a personal inventory each day. And the people who wrote these steps were so wise. Because if I don't do that, then like the laundry or the garbage, it just piles up. And I'm the only one that's really hurt by that. And I don't want that garbage and that laundry piling up. It's easier for me if I try to take an inventory each day and if I try to admit when I'm wrong. In the 11th step, we're asked to meditate on God, asking only how much shorter our prayers are today instead of asking for things that I know what His will is for me and that He give me the strength to carry that out. That's the shortest prayer in the world, and it covers everything. And I'm the beneficiary, if in a very busy day, that I take the time to talk to God and to listen and to try to find what His will is for me. In the twelfth step, it said that we had a spiritual awakening and I spent a great deal of time when I was first in Al-Anon waiting for doves to hover over my head and a light to come down and an angelic choir to sing. <laughs> and hopefully I'd levitate a little. <laughs> now, very frankly, if that had happened to me, I probably would have put myself in one of those funny farms. But the, ma the, the magnificent thing about this step is that it says having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, my spiritual awakening is going to be as a result of practicing the first 11 steps. That means no great magnificent choir, but it means that it never has to end, that it's not going to be one glorious moment. But it, that spiritual awakening can go on for as long as I try to practice this program. We're asked to practice these principles in all our affairs. It's very easy to be serene in a meeting room. It's even easy to be sober, I guess, in a meeting room. Where it counts is in our jobs, with the people we meet, and with our family. It wouldn't make any difference at all if you all thought I gave a great lead and no one in my family knew that I was trying to live this program. It wouldn't make any difference at all if I didn't try to practice this in my home. And there's ample opportunity with a family. And that's true whether you have one, any family, whatever your family circle is. And there certainly have been problems with our children that this program has helped me with. And they've been many and married and different and varied and interesting. It's never been dull. And every time I use this program, it worked. One of the great joys in my life is that today I live not with one alcoholic, but with six. Five of our children 
have given me permission to tell that they are recovering members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now that is their story and their miracle. But my miracle is that I found out that Al-Anon worked if I let it, that I could detach, that I could love and care and yet give people the privilege and the responsibility of facing what they were doing and its consequences. That I could have joy in my life. That I could go to sleep at night and ask God to take care of these children. Their miracle, and I cannot promise any parent in this room who was concerned about a child's drinking, that that child will be sober. But I can tell you, based on my own experience, that when I allowed it to, that my miracle was that Al-Anon worked for me during that period before that they could face their alcoholic problem. And today I'm the beneficiary of five young people practicing this program not only to stay sober, but in all their affairs. And I am so very, very grateful. We're asked to carry this message to others. Blanche mentioned about world, the fact that I've been involved in world service. and I'm really not going to talk to you about service, not in Texas. Uh, there's too much service down here. And there are too many friends that I have who have given me so very, very much through their service. Some of them I've never even met. And some of them are very, very good friends. All I can tell you about service as from my point of view is that no matter what I have done in service, whether it was a group or a district or an assembly or a world service office, is that no matter what I have given, I have been given so much more in return. And that service is part of my spiritual recovery. And I think that it is such an essential part. It is part of each one of us responsibility. Al-Anon was there and it was Al-Anon when I walked into that meeting room 19 years ago and it's so important that it be there today and that it be Al-Anon and it's all of our responsibility and we all have different ways of fulfilling that responsibility but it isn't you're missing so much I feel when you say I'm here only for my own recovery I cannot do anything else that's part of getting better and in that giving all I can say to you is if you have my experience, you'll be given much more than you ever, ever gave. The one thing I did do in service, and typical of what I was going to do, I went to give as an Alateen sponsor. And for five years, those young people gave to me. They gave me humor and honesty, sometimes brutal honesty. And they taught me a great deal about love. And that's really what my story is. It's a love story. It's a story of your love for me and my very, very real love for you. There are no words for me to thank you to each one of you. There's a song that I like very much and I don't sing. The title of it is, You'll Never Walk Alone. And it seems just in those few words to express what Al-Anon has meant to me. Because it seems to me that if each of us 
use God as we understand him. And each of us use these programs of AA and Al-Anon and Alateen and these steps and these slogans. And if each of us use each other in the very best sense of that word to use each other, then truly you'll never walk alone and neither will I. We'll walk together. Thank you. It has to come from the heart to reach the heart, right? I think we're all aware that God is the source and that he uses people. But I think it's all right to use, for us to love and appreciate the vessels that he uses. Whenever I talk, I very truly would rather people leave thinking what a marvelous program than thinking what a marvelous speaker. And yet, I think we have had marvelous speakers and it's all right to acknowledge that. I think we're off to a fantastic start. I hope you're as excited as I am about the weekend. In a little while, there will be a call-up meeting in here, a night owl late meeting. I think, am I right, that since Frank is not here, Babs is going to chair that. And all of you who want to stay, please do. We will close in the usual manner. All of you who care to, would you join hands? For the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Keep coming back. Thank you.